Hello, I'm Drew Smith. And I'm Joe Simpson. And welcome to Looking Out the Podcast, auditory sidekick to the newsletter, in which we connect the dots across mobility, design and culture. Coming up in this show, we talk about the state of EV charging and its potential to derail the adoption of electric vehicles, the incredible costs of owning a car and what it might mean for a car making industry under pressure, and cars in the cloud, or what can the car industry and consumers learn from a big tech revolution? Right. Let's get this show on the road. The automotive industry is rushing headlong towards electrification. By 2030, sales of internal combustion cars will be banned in some countries. But many people are nervous about being forced into an EV. And it's going to take a lot more than just great cars with longer range batteries to convince them. One of the major factors people reference when it comes to EV adoption, or should we say hesitation, is the public charging network. In issue 27 of Looking Out, I highlighted a collective angst, mainly from a pro-EV US technology and business press, highlighting how badly maintained and unreliable the US's fledgling public fast charge network was. Articles in Ars Technica, The Wall Street Journal, and AutoWeek all had tales of woe to tell about long road trips which had taken several times longer than planned due to faulty charges, charges which wouldn't talk to cars and deliver a charge, or charges which were delivering only a fraction of their quoted speed, making for long charge stops. Now, so dire was the situation for Ars Technica that in its editorial, it suggested that this clustercuss of a customer experience could harm the adoption of EVs and limit their sales. How, you might ask? Well, if every EV driver has a traumatic tale of charging woe, they're sure to share it with their non-EV driving friends, casting a shadow of doubt over whether they should themselves make the leap. And this isn't just a problem in the US either. In his article, Joe spoke about his experiences of the charging crapshoot he's endured in Sweden and in the UK. Now, Joe's a lovely, mild-mannered type. But with this tale of woe, I can just imagine his blood beginning to boil. Kids and wife in the car on the return leg of a driving holiday, Joe was on the phone to the customer service team of Ionity a charging network. He was trying to have them resurrect a failed charger. Now imagine the incandescent rage as he watched a Tesla driver jump the queue, leaving him stuck for another half hour before another charger came free. Speaking of Tesla, does partial redemption perhaps lie in Tesla's supercharger network? It's currently being opened up to non-Tesla EVs and after all, Tesla's network represents about nine-tenths of the fast charger landscape today. So why is this interesting? If the reality with the charges continues as reported, can automotive OEMs continue to outsource such a critical part of the future driving or using experience to third parties who right now aren't doing a great job? After all, outgoing Volkswagen CEO... Herbert Dies 
repeatedly said that the experience of using both Ionity in Europe and Electrify America in the US wasn't good enough. But who is the primary investor and backer of those exact networks? Volkswagen. Ultimately, I can't help wondering if we're missing an opportunity here. If we've got people somewhere for 15 to 20 minutes, can't we do better than dump them in the back of a seedy business park with nothing to do? Or in the car park of a McDonald's where your only food choice is a burger and fries? Isn't there a bigger business and commercial opportunity here? What do you think, Drew? You know, it's so funny. I'm just remembering the fact that in about 2018, I wrote a series of articles on the increasing importance of customer experience design in the automotive sector and service design uh, specifically. And of course, the big case study that I drew upon in this series of articles was the Tesla supercharger network. And it blows my mind. It absolutely blows my mind that however many years later we're now talking, we still have not really moved the game on. And while I think you know, opening up the supercharger network is a start, you only have to look at what happens in California, for example, on the way to or from Lake Tahoe, where you have, you know, literally tens, if not hundreds of Teslas kind of lining up to use an already scant resource. What's going to happen when, you know, that resource is then diluted across even more EVs as, you know, the case will soon be in Europe. I think it's worth picking up on two points there. So for those listeners that don't know and haven't used one, one of the things about the Tesla supercharger network that maybe isn't obvious if you haven't used it or you're not a Tesla owner, it's not simply that they are more numerous and have more charging stalls than, say, a network like Ionity. Your Tesla knows where Tesla superchargers are. Your Tesla's navigation system will direct you to a less busy supercharger if it knows that a supercharger station is getting full, like you mentioned. And when you arrive at the Tesla supercharger station, your Tesla knows it's there. It knows which stall it's at. You can go and plug the plug in and it starts charging because the car already has your account and everything kind of deep linked into it. Whereas one of the things that's deeply frustrating about the charging networks that are kind of sit around operated by other third parties like Ionity is it can be so difficult just to fire them up. You're trying and fiddling with this combination of credit cards, RFID tags, another RFID tag from a third party umbrella company or an app. And they often don't work. And it's, you know, I spent time last summer where it was only by my sheer bloody mindedness that I managed to get the car to charge. I think most people would have given up after three or four attempts, but on the eighth attempt, I managed to get it to work. So I think that's a kind of big thing to hold up when we talk about service design and what Tesla have actually done really well that others just don't seem to get. And I think if we look at the challenges that Volkswagen, for example, is facing in terms of developing in-car software, right? So the human machine interface, so the navigation systems and climate controls and so on and so forth. And the fact that, you know, we were talking about this just today, the fact that, you know, three or four years into Volkswagen's push into EV, they still haven't managed to sort the basics of 
good user experience in what are meant to be, you know, mass market electric vehicles, I really do worry um, that it's going to be a long time yet before we really start to see that deep integration that you just spoke about um, in the Tesla ecosystem start flowing into um, the way, you know, other makers uh, and the customers or other makers uh, are, are able to support, you know, charging behavior. Right. And, and I think this is without even considering so many other factors, Um you know the the kind of the wait time the whole idea that this kind of charging your car actually presents a bit of a fundamental change in mindset to the last hundred years of the way we've used cars but let's put that aside for a minute what about safety what about you're slightly vulnerable you're in a car which doesn't have much range at this point you're plugging in you're around the back of a fuel station it's dark you're a woman on your own maybe is that a good situation do we do we want to start to think about how we might make our uh you know customers feel safe feel like it's a place they even want to spend some time i mean clearly i reference mcdonald's in the piece mcdonald's get it there's a charger in nearly every mcdonald's car park now they know we'll bring you here you can charge a car up you will go into the store and buy some of our food but surely they can't be the only one surely there's a there's a bigger bigger sort of and better way of thinking about this that that presents a business of and commercial opportunity yeah absolutely and i mean if you just look at the kind of installed base of petrol stations right um what's going to be happening with um that land use over time how can that be repurposed to take advantage of people who are going to be stopping for for just a little bit longer um, might have a little bit more time on their hands when they when they pull up it's a fascinating conversation uh, it's one that I have absolutely no doubt is going to keep on coming up as we kind of continue our journey into into the Looking Out podcast. But coming up next, let's have a conversation about owning a car, what it costs you to own a car, and what it costs the rest of us. In issue 27 of Looking Out, the newsletter, I wrote about an eye-opening YouTube video that explores the incredible costs of owning a car. We'll put the link in the show notes if you haven't yet read it. Now, say you lived in Germany and owned Volkswagen Golfs for the 50 years of your driving life, you'd pay out over 400,000 euros simply to buy, maintain, and drive your car on German roads. Now, when I mentioned this to my fellow podcaster, Mark Pesci of The Next Billion Seconds, he said, so people are spending more on their cars than their homes? And I was like, wow, yeah, they are. And in fact, depending on your income level in Germany, you can expect to give up 15 to 40% of your lifetime income just to own a humble Golf. But here's the thing. You're not the only one who pays to drive your car. The state, or in other words, your fellow German taxpayers, contribute another €250,000 to build and maintain the infrastructure you use and to repair the environment you damage and to offset the impact from the accidents you, or drivers like you, have caused. As governments look to transfer the cost of the climate crisis to those most responsible, 
we can expect more and more of those external costs to be transferred back to the end user, car drivers. Under such a scenario, your humble golf could end up costing you 650,000 euros or between 24 and 66% of the average lifetime income. You can't help wonder if that's going to seem like good value for something that, on average, sits unused and basically useless for 23 out of 24 hours per day. The thing is, these figures are based on recent conservative data that doesn't account for the fact that we're now likely to be healthy enough to drive longer than 50 years, that inflation is spiralling, and that cars are getting way more expensive. As manufacturers race to equip them with sensor suites that they hope will enable autonomous driving, and as they transition to more costly electric propulsion, they're going to have to pass these costs on to the consumer. So why is this interesting? Well, Joe, the question running through my mind is, who the hell is going to be able to afford a new car? And how are we going to be able to provide mobility for those who can't? Because whether it's Paris or London, or even these days the city of New York or the state of California, governments and citizens are supporting policies designed to drive the adoption of cleaner vehicles and the creation of more equitable mobility scenarios. But as I mentioned in the last episode, manufacturers are already starting to prioritize the creation of larger, more expensive vehicles from which they can extract greater profits. So what's going to happen to the low end of the market? Will less affluent consumers be left for dead by OEMs? And if so, how are we going to keep folk moving? Joe, what's your take? I don't think I have good answers. I I feel that this is the stuff that we're in this moment of transition for cars where, you know, the technology, the batteries, everything else is is making them more expensive. And, um, you know, OEMs need to make money. But I think we are facing this really thorny question of how do we continue to keep people moving how do we provide mobility and you know not that many people in the great scheme of things can afford 60,000 euros or the monthly payments on a 60,000 euro new car um so i i think and uh, you know not to give away the next section i think it becomes even more interesting to talk about fractional shared mobility um and yet what this piece actually made me think about was your piece on micro mobility in the last issue and what keeps ringing in my mind is you came back from the conference in amsterdam saying that there was a sense that micro mobility shared micro mobility wasn't the way forward the way forward was going to be people owning e-bikes and owning scooters and we're seeing this huge uptick in sales of e-bikes particularly here in Europe and i wonder whether this is the point where we're going to end up with a transition where we tip where there will actually start to be fewer cars on the road in some places where the car will go back to being this um not a kind of you know the sort of 
the people's wagon, the thing that everyone can aspire to own, but is the, the sort of uh, the vehicle of, of the lucky, wealthy few. Um, and I, I, that obviously has good and, and, and bad points to it. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was, it was only today I noticed that um, Jeep has announced their first pure EVs. And there was a commentator on Twitter talking about the fact that, um, you know, the new smallest GPV was going to be absolutely perfect for the European market. And another commentator kind of popped up and said, yeah, but if it's based on the Corsa E platform, so the Stellantis kind of small car, small car EV platform, um, then it's already going to be kind of out of reach of the vast majority of kind of, you know, entry-level small car consumers in the European market. And I did some fag packet calculations. And, you know, if you look at, say, the average household income in a country like Spain, the monthly payments currently on a corsery are about 30%. And that's that's coming on top of, like, I guess listeners don't need, you know, to be to be reminded of this, but a situation where in many European countries, the estimate is that the average energy bill for your home is going to become 25% of average take-home income before long. And where I think for most people, the rule of thumb of rent or mortgage has typically been a quarter or a third of your monthly income. So if you put those three things together, that's broadly three quarters of average monthly income. I mean, do you choose to buy food or do you choose to travel? In, in some ways, it's quite a scary scenario. Um, and yeah, I, I think it will be really interesting to see how this pans out, to see when we talk about cars, which OEMs stay in the lower end of the market. We're already seeing what's typically known as the A segment hollowed out. I think there's only uh, Hyundai, Kia and Toyota and then a, couple, a handful of others still left there. The Volkswagen Group will leave that once they're up and cars have gone, you know. And just for the listeners... If you're not familiar with what an A-segment car is, it's something like a Volkswagen Lupo or a Toyota Igo or a Renault Twingo. Uh, Hyundai i10. Hyundai i10, exactly. But Joe, I have a feeling that we may be about to talk about a potential solution to all of this. Coming up next on Looking Out the Podcast cars in the cloud no really we love a good analogy here at looking out i guess you could say that a good analogy makes the world easier to understand by taking something that the audience already understands and transposing its principles into a new domain an analogy can make that new domain understandable too Take, for example, Steve Jobs' description of the personal computer as a bicycle for the mind. Put humans on a bicycle and multiply the powers that we contain in our legs through the gears and all of a sudden we can go much further for every bit of energy we expend. By calling a computer a bicycle for the mind, Jobs wanted to illustrate the capacity for the personal computer to dramatically expand the realm in which the human mind could operate. But what about the future of the car? Like, what's an analogy that might help us envision a world in which we only use as much car as we need to get the job done 
and then let it go for somebody else. A world in which we offload all of our worries about maintenance and parking and upgrades and just pay for access. Well, whether you're a corporate or a consumer, you already do this in the world of information technology. Increasingly, rather than buying, installing and maintaining their own servers and software licenses, corporates have been buying access to what we call cloud services from companies like Amazon, Google and Microsoft. This gives them access to computing resources that are always up to date and scalable as their needs change. And if you're a user of services like Apple's iCloud or Google's suite of work apps, then you're already doing this too. Gone are the days of having to upgrade your hard drive for more storage or buying a CD-ROM to update your software. For the price of a subscription, everything is taken care of for you. So what about cars as cloud services as an analogy? Could it be a helpful way to think about the future of car-based mobility? I've got to be honest, I'm flailing in the dark here, dear listener, and I genuinely love to hear your thoughts on this topic. But this is why it's interesting for me. I would love to see subscription and share models succeed because I believe they have a place in a mobility future that's more diverse, more equitable, and more sustainable. But for years now, car makers and others like Zipcar, Sixt, and ShareNow have been trying to make subscription to cars a thing but they've manifestly failed to break our addiction to the ball ache of owning, maintaining, and upgrading our own devices. I mean, cars. And having pondered this for a few weeks, I've a few thoughts on why that might be. But Joe, I'd love to hear your thinking on this. So I think this subject is fascinating. And I think somewhere in this are some kind of answers and ideas for you know, the future of mobility for all of us. Why has it not become a thing? Why has it not worked so far? Well, a few thoughts. Um, back to that point we were talking about in the charging section. Um, the service design has not been that great. That's clearly one point. But the fundamental here, I think, is that the reason people are prepared to pay so much for cars is a combination of two things. One of those for many people is the kind of avatar qualities, as our friend Chris Bangle would say, what it kind of can do in terms of who you are and how your neighbors and people perceive you. But I think arguably a bigger part is convenience. And I think the problem with the analogy is that Distributed cloud software fundamentally relies on the fact that it's software. So it's in the cloud. We can use, uh, I'm going to sound like a Luddite, pipes and, you know, uh, wires, and they're not anymore. But to kind of, you know, <laughs> bridge, the, bridge the geographical distance between where those servers are and where we are. Um, with a vehicle, be it a car or a van or even a bike or a scooter is fairly tricky. Um, if it's distributed and many people are using it or you're paying for just when you use it, um, the problem is that because someone else might use it, it then isn't where you want it to be when you want it. And so suddenly we create this factor of inconvenience. Um, now, as you pointed out, the funny thing is, 
It's not like owning a car today is particularly convenient when you consider paying for it, trying to find parking for it, traffic jams, and so on. So again, I'm back to wondering, where's the tipping point when we might accept that maybe it's better for paying for that fractional access and occasionally we might have to walk five minutes to find it or we might get left standing in the rain for 10 minutes. I I agree. I agree wholeheartedly with all of that. I think there's another aspect which to date probably has not been sufficiently well addressed and that is the culture, like the, the question of the culture around car ownership. Now, I know from my kind of professional experience in my day-to-day working life, in a corporate environment, a, a successful transition to cloud services requires a radically different mindset amongst the folk who are going to use them, right? Now, from a consumer perspective, Apple and Google have spent decades evolving their services and educating consumers about the benefits of their cloud offering. At work, we specialize in helping employees understand the benefits of moving to cloud services at a very personal level. Um, and we support them on that, that transition. Now, this helps create a con- culture that's conducive to change and to adoption of new things. And before we recorded this episode, I went and took a look at uh, the websites of Lincoln Co., Care by Volvo, and Sixth. None of them really seem to be making a particularly compelling case for making the switch. There's no calculator that helps me understand kind of, you know, or do some kind of cost-benefit analysis, right, which might appear to appeal to, a, to, to, to my rational side. And from an emotional perspective, there's just not a whole lot there which kind of makes me go, oh, yeah, shared mobility is the future and it's the answer to my personal mobility challenges that I'm currently facing. I think there's there's two things that we've got here. As you're talking about, there's the fundamental convenience factor. There's the lack of ubiquity that you know people experience when they own their own car. It's always there. It's always available for them. But I think there's also this much broader cultural question, like how do we educate people that this is not just a legitimate replacement for owning a vehicle, but in many cases is manifestly better. It makes you wonder, though, whether it can be done. It's not the right analogy, but it brings to mind for me, do you remember when Deyu launched in the UK? And they had rehashed GM products that were 10 years old, but they brought this for the time, and we're talking about the 1990s when this was launched, um, and I, I'm too much of a little Englander to know whether it was done kind of, uh, you know, sort of pan-Europe and, and the rest of the world. I, I don't know if it was. But in the UK, they launched these sort of dealerships, which weren't dealerships. They were more like a destination. And there was kind of no sales pressure and the prices were fixed. And at this point, it was kind of really radical. And then you got this car serviced at Halfords, which was a kind of, uh, you know, a third party. And this whole different approach to the way you bought and sold and maintained a car um, actually really worked. They had very big success. They were really popular in the UK. And I think that maybe gives a clue to the fact that I think right now it's like the alternative isn't clear. Why doing it in the way that you are describing is better is not something that is apparent to people. And I think when someone comes along, 
maybe let's use the cliche, maybe it's Apple, that I think people can understand why this might be better and what the advantages are, then we might see a shift. But it will take a cultural change um, in the mindset of the companies that are doing it and delivering the mobility to then educate and bring the consumer or the user along with them on that journey, as you say. Right now, everything's too set up still around dealerships, three-year cycles, blah, blah, blah. That's what people know how to consume and purchase. Totally, totally. Well, that's it for the headlines. But Joe, what else have you found interesting of late? So I have been reading... um, Emmanuel Macron's speech, uh, which he delivered in late August when the uh, uh, French parliament uh, reconvened. And um, uh, why am I talking about Emmanuel Macron and his speech? Well, he talked about the end of the age of abundance and the beginning of the age of scarcity. And this touches up to, I think, a couple of the topics that we've discussed tonight um, on the podcast. And What he was really holding up, and the reason I think it's important, is this was really the first time that a leader of a major developed nation really talked about the fact that, hey, we may be reaching this tipping point. We may be at this point where a assumption that an abundance of raw materials, products, technology, and a kind of never-ending flow of cash and access to Uh, natural resources, even water, um, was potentially tipping, changing, ending, that the war in Ukraine um, had kind of acted as a sort of marker and that from this point onwards, we were in this period where people might have to reconsider how they do things. And now he's received a huge amount of criticism for this speech because uh, the way that a lot of people have taken it is, well actually, you know what, there's 10 million people in France that are already in poverty and you're saying to them, oh, but you're going to have to live even worse in the future. Uh, That's, you know, that's not a kind of great sort of way of setting out your stall as kind of the, you know, the head of state. But I think it's important in that, I think it might be the first of many times that we see Um, not just the leaders of countries, but kind of important figures, public figures start to talk about a change in the way we fundamentally consume and and think about life. And I think in Europe, with the energy pressures, both in terms of availability of energy and then the cost of energy, I think this winter is going to be really quite painful and unpleasant for some, but it will be, I'm curious to see how this plays out. And whether we can accelerate sort of opportunities in other areas because of it, because we need to change and do things differently. So I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, given the conversation we've just been having about how we keep people, you know, who can't afford cars moving, right, this starts to ask some very difficult questions of an industry that that is predicated on consumption. Exactly. And I think if you... The reason to bring sort of Macron into it is, you know, heads of state and governments will, if you suddenly have um, a a large proportion of your population 
literally left behind, unable to afford to move, unable to afford to heat their homes and stuff. You've got a situation where you potentially got a very dire situation in that country and, and the conditions for significant unrest and people chucking governments out. So governments are going to want to make people like energy companies and mobility companies move on this and, and solve some of their problems. So Drew, while I've been become obsessed with French politics, uh, what have you been reading about? Surely more interesting things. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, Bentley launched a uh, multi-million pound uh, limited run vehicle called Le, the, the Batur. And it is the swan song for the Volkswagen Group's famed uh, W12 engine. And I have to admit that when I saw this thing, I thought, Christ on a bike, that is a really, really bland looking piece of design. And a friend of mine in Australia, uh, Marcus, he said, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of those generic cars that get used in insurance ads, right? So it, it, it kind of looks like a sports car that you might recognize, but maybe not. And what I did on that day, because I was so delighted by this, this simile, I said, I thought to myself, I'll take an image of a, of a Bentley Batur, one of the press images, and I'll do a reverse image search on it um, using Google image search. And what was absolutely fascinating to me was what came up were at that point, not other images of the Batur, but pictures of Citroen DS concepts of, uh, Genesis, uh, concepts, which, you know, given the kind of the shared design history between sort of, uh, Bentley design staff and Genesis design staff, perhaps doesn't come <laughs> as, as much of a surprise. And it got me start asking kind of all sorts of questions about what happens when we start to use tools like, you know, Google image search, which is a mainstay of any design studio that I've been in as a source of inspiration and how, how is artificial intelligence essentially starting to narrow the realm of possibility because it's always aiming to find the single perfect image as opposed to kind of driving a, a multiplicity of images um, you know, from which we can be inspired. Now, while all of that was going on, there's a whole bunch of new AI-driven creative tools that are coming to market, one of which is called Stable Diffusion. Um, Stable Diffusion is different from the rest because it's open source. And uh, last week, um, two bloggers, programmers, a guy called Andy Bain and Simon Williamson, actually looked at the database of images that drive stable diffusion, uh, you know, on which stable diffusion has been trained. And they managed to extract, I don't know, I think it's like a couple of million images and put it into a searchable database. And what they've discovered is that, of course, this database has been trained on the work of other artists. I think the majority of images within the database have been pulled from places like Pinterest. And of course, this starts to open up a debate about fair use, copyright, attribution, the ethics of AI-driven creativity. But as I thought about it, it strikes me on some levels that these tools are operating a lot like human creativity at the moment. So we take in stimulus as humans, we mix it around in our brain, and we create something unique of our own. The difference is that as humans, that process takes time, and the effort of production is something that makes human-produced art human, 
right? It, there's, there's an effort involved in that cogitation and recombination of ideas to produce something new. Whereas for something like stable diffusion, it can pump out like images in their thousands, right? Of, with infinite varieties, um, with a fraction of the human effort required. You just need to type in the right terms using language into the system and the system will start generating and refining ideas. And it leads me to start asking a whole bunch of questions about what the role of the designer is actually going to be in the future. And there's, there's kind of this dystopic scenario where I imagine designers basically getting in a feedback loop with an artificial intelligence where they're coming up with a perfect linguistic search terms to define what it is that they want to create. The system pumps something out. They're like, oh, that's not quite right. So they refine it, they feed it back into the system and they enter into this dialogue with artificial intelligence. I find it fascinating. And as I said in the newsletter, like I, I, I don't know enough to have any strongly formed opinions, but I have a feeling that this whole thing is going to explode over the coming months and years. I mean, based on the conversations I've been having with designer friends and that I know have been happening in our studio over the past few weeks about this, I think there are a lot of people thinking similar thoughts to you. And I think... What interests me about it is how many people are not going down the road of, oh, well, we're all going to be out of a job, but a kind of, how can we work with this in interesting ways? How can we, you know, and I think there's a lot of curiosity towards it at the moment, which is, I find very heartening because I think curiosity is a kind of key sort of skill or sort of fundamental of being a designer. Um, so yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be fascinating how this uh, how this plays out, um, but it's very much the the sort of the obsession of the moment with a lot of people that I'm talking to. Well, that's it for this second episode of Looking Out. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. If you like the show, hit the subscribe button. And if you know someone who might like it too, please share it with them. For more about the topics in our show, visit our website at automobility.substack.com where you can sign up for the Looking Out newsletter. Looking Out, the podcast was written and presented by Joe Simpson and Drew Smith and produced by Chris Frith. This is Joe Simpson and thank you for listening.